This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Let's pray. Our dear Father, we thank you so much that you have given us your word, that your word is eternal life, points us to Christ. So Lord, again, as we uh, open up your word today, we pray that we may see you more clearly and to love you more dearly and to follow you more nearly. pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, the Eiffel Tower was built in 1889. Uh, Why was it originally erected? Well, it was for an exhibition, an international exhibition that was going to be happening in Paris. However, when it was originally constructed, the people of Paris hated the Eiffel Tower. They said it was, quote, unquote, monstrous. They complained that the Eiffel Tower was this horrible blemish on their famous city of romance. And it wasn't long before the people of Paris were demanding that the Eiffel Tower be torn down. Well, come to today, 120 years later, And the Eiffel Tower is one of the architectural wonders of the modern world. You can't go to Paris and not visit the Eiffel Tower. The Eiffel Tower now is an iconic landmark of Paris. Now, the church is a bit like that. Lots of people can see the church as a blemish. They can see the church as monstrous. They can wish the church didn't exist. But believe it or not, the church is the iconic landmark of Jesus' crosswork. Now, you might be sitting there thinking to yourself, Marty, for goodness sake, when I look at the church, that is not what I see, not some iconic landmark. But here's the question... Are you actually looking at the church? You see, what is the church? I might say, uh, the church was locked when I arrived tonight. There, the church means building. Or you might say, I was late to church on Sunday. There, the word church means church service. How about this? Were you baptised into the Anglican, Presbyterian or Methodist Church? In that sentence, the church means the denomination. How about this? In my church, there are at least ten ethnic groups. Here, the word church means a group of people that all attend the services. In other words, the church in that sense, is a local local group of people. Already, I have used the word church in four ways. 
Church can mean building, church can mean service, church can mean denomination, church can mean a local group or community of Christians. Which one is it? Well, here's the more important question. What does the Bible mean by the word church? So when Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail, what did he mean? Well, in this session we're going to be looking at the church and then we're going to be looking at the last things and so for one last time. <laughs> Gospel. <laughs> <laughs> and what is the gospel? Beautiful, the person and the work of Christ. And we have a gospel because of the topic of sin. And who is it that sins? Humans, that's right, good. And humans are a part of creation. And the one who created was God. And what we looked at last night was knowledge of God. Remember? That this next topic is the topic of what does it deal with? Gotcha. <laughs> the gospel is redemption accomplished, whereas the doctrine of salvation is redemption applied. Redemption accomplished is the gospel. When you declare the gospel, you're saying that redemption has been completely accomplished. But then it has to be applied, doesn't it, by the Spirit. So it gets applied individually in the topic of salvation. It gets applied corporately in the topic of church. And it gets applied finally in the doctrine of the last things. Okay, so today we're going to be looking at the church and we're going to be looking at the last things. So let's come back to that question. What is the church? Now, have you ever heard anyone saying, now look, the church is not the building, it's the people? You heard that one? I used to hear that one all the time. Uh, can I say it's not right? It's almost right. It's missing something really important. Think about all the images of the church that are portrayed in the New Testament. For example, we're told that the church is the body of Christ. We are the body. Christ is the head of the body. We're also told in the New Testament that the church is the bride of Christ. Christ is the groom. The church is the bride. Another image of the church is when Jesus says, I am the vine. And you are the branches. Christ is the vine. The church is the branches that are connected to the vine. Another image of the church is as the household of God. With Jesus as the chief cornerstone of the household. Now, there's just a few images of the church. What do all these images tell us about the church? They all have something in common. They're not just a picture of people. What are they a picture of? They're a picture of God's people, yes. But in every one, they are connected 
to Christ. See, think of the body of Christ. Christ is the head, and we are the body. You can't have a body without a head if you couldn't survive, could it? You don't really talk about a body without a head. That would be weird. And we shouldn't talk about the church without its head. Wouldn't make sense. Think of a bride without a husband. Does that make any sense? That's impossible. And so we shouldn't talk about the bride of Christ without the bride's relation to the head. Think of the branches and the vine. Could you have branches without a vine? That would be inconceivable. You see, when it comes to the church, we mustn't just think of the church as just simply people. It must include Christ. Why? Why is this so important? Because Christ is the one who empowers his people. God's people cannot grow without Christ's resurrection power. Remember we saw in the doctrine of salvation last night that we as individuals are married to Christ. The doctrine of the church is just simply recognise that we aren't the only one married to Christ. The doctrine of the church is just simply that all of us are married to Christ. Christ is the head and we are his body. Now you might be thinking to yourself, well that's great, uh, but how is it that Christ empowers his people? Well, this is understood when we grasp where the church is. You see, if the church is God's people connected to Christ, here's the question. Where is Christ? Where is Christ now? Remember? Where's Jesus? Fantastic. Seated on his throne in heaven at the right hand of God. And that is exactly where the Bible tells us the church is. Look here at Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 24. You'll see, sorry, verse 22. Where the writer of the Hebrews says this to the Hebrew readers. But you now, you have come to Mount Zion. You've come to the city of the living God. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. And look at look at this. You have come to the church of the firstborn. The firstborn, of course, is Christ, whose names are written in heaven. The church of the firstborn is actually gathered around Christ in heaven. Isn't that amazing? You see, the word church just simply means gathering of people. And we, as believers, are gathered to Christ there in heaven. Hang on, what what do you mean we're gathered in heaven? I mean, I'm sitting here, it doesn't look very heavenly to me. I look at the person next to me, look at the person on the other side. This is not heaven. What's going on? We are not in heaven physically. We are in heaven relationally. We Remember we saw we are relationally connected to Jesus by the Holy Spirit. 
Now, the internet has changed so much about our world. I, back in the Middle Ages, uh, used to work in IT. You know, I first got onto the internet in 1988. Now, some of you weren't even born then. But what the internet has particularly done well is to connect people who aren't physically present with us. I live now in Singapore. One of the great things about the internet is I can talk to my mum who lives in Australia. We're not connected physically, we are connected electronically. And we can have a relationship via the connection of the internet. And that's a little bit like our connection with Christ. We have a relationship with Jesus via the connection of the Holy Spirit. Christ is physically in heaven. We are physically on earth, but we are in heaven with him relationally via the Holy Spirit. And so the true church gathering is there with Jesus in heaven. That's the fundamental church. When Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail, that is the church that he is talking about. And we might want to call that the heavenly church. But hang on, the heavenly church? Uh, Marty, are you meaning to tell me that the church is actually not physically visible? I mean, can we actually see the church anywhere? Yes, we can. The church is indeed visible. The church is visible in three ways, according to Scripture. The first way the church appears on earth is wherever Christians appear on earth. So, for example, look at 1 Corinthians 10.32, where Paul says to the Corinthians, Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, whether Greeks, or the church of God. So you think about it, Jews, any Jewish people, Greeks, any Greek people, or the church of God, any people who are in the church. See, wherever Christians are, there is the church. New Testament uses it that way when it says Paul went from house to house persecuting the church. It just meant he was persecuting Christians. Why are Christians anywhere and everywhere called the church? Well, because Christians anywhere and everywhere, no matter where they are, are connected to Christ by the Holy Spirit. We can speak of the church throughout Southeast Asia. That just simply means Christians in Southeast Asia. And over time... Theologians have come to call this the general church. We're just talking about Christians generally. So the first way that you can see the heavenly church on earth is when you encounter Christians anywhere and everywhere. Now, the second way that the church appears on earth or that the church can be visibly seen, is as a local group of believers. Look, for example, at Galatians 1.1. 
Paul writes this letter to the Galatians and he says, Paul, an apostle, blah, 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 blah. And then how does he introduce it? He says, to the churches in Galatia. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Churches, plural. Why doesn't Paul say to the church, meaning Christians, throughout Galatia? Why does he say the churches? Because the church on earth exists in another form. It's what we call the local church. Now, what is a local church? Well, this is when a particular group of Christians are especially committed to each other. They are committed to build up and strengthen each other. So much so that this group of Christians will have their own leaders. Leaders who oversee them. Leaders whose job it is to equip them to serve Jesus. BTPC is a local church. BTPC is a community of people, a group of Christians who are committed to serving each other over whom are leaders. Now, let's have a look at this really important part of Scripture in Ephesians 4. What I want you to notice is what Paul says about the church here. He says, Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up. Now, look at those five gifts in red. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. What do they all have in common? Word ministry. Fantastic. They're all word ministry, aren't they? They're all involved in the proclamation of the gospel. They're word gifts. There we go. But why are the word gifts given? Christ himself gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. Why? It's to equip. That's what their job is. It's not fundamentally to preach. Yes, it will involve preaching, but it is fundamentally to equip. Who are the word gifts to equip? You see it there? Who? Just check that you're on board with me. God's people. Yeah, yeah. God's people. Their job is to equip God's people. That's good. Equip them to do what? Here. Works of service. Not hard, is it? Just, just got to read out the, the verse. Okay. <laughs> the word gifts are there to equip God's people for works of service. Why? What will works of service ultimately do? Not rocket science. Read the verse out. Beautiful. Thank you, thank you, HD. Okay, so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now, that is a picture of how the local church works. God raises up word gifts. 
and the word gifts, those with the gifts of proclamation, they equip the rest of the church to serve each other, that's works of service, so that the body of Christ might be built up. You see, the body can't grow, can it, unless everyone is involved in service. But people can't learn to serve unless the word gifts equip them. In other words, there is a priority on the word gifts. A local church can't grow unless it has leaders who are continually, day in and day out, proclaiming the word, whether it be one-on-one over a coffee, whether it be in small groups, whether it be from a pulpit. That is a picture of the local church. Now, there's one last way that the heavenly church is visible on earth, and that is shown in this verse here, 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul says, in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. How is the word church used here? It's used as a gathering or a meeting of Christians. And we might want to call that the gathered church. Now, what makes a gathering of believers actually church when they actually come together? Is it when they come together to eat? Is it when they come together to binge out on some Netflix? No. They've got to come together for a particular purpose. And that purpose is to build up through the word. 1 Corinthians 14, 26. I'm not sure that I've got it. No. 1 Corinthians 14, 26 sums it up well. What shall we say, brothers or sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn, a word, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. They're all word activities, by the way. And then Paul says this. Everything that is done must be done so that church is built up. What makes a church gathering a church service? It's when Christians gather together to be built up by God's word. Now, here's a really interesting thing. The word worship is never used in the New Testament for the purpose of the church gathering doesn't mean that we don't do a bit of worshipping in the church gathering, but it's not given as the fundamental purpose for the church gathering. The fundamental purpose over and over again in the New Testament for Christians when they gather together in a church meeting is to build up through the word edification or encouragement. Now, this third use of the word church, the gathered church, this third way that you can see the heavenly church visibly, this really is the supreme activity of a local church, number two. Local church is the community of people, and what they will do is their great activity will be to meet together in various ways, to build each other up by the word of God. You see, a gathering on Sunday is just as much a church as a midweek gathering in a home if both gatherings are there to build up each other by the word of God. 
And the reason why there are different sized gatherings and you particularly have the big one on a Sunday is because you can build up in different ways given different sized groups. You can achieve something in a one-to-one gathering that can't be achieved in the big gathering. You can achieve things in a big gathering that you can't achieve in a small group. And so we gather in all kinds of different ways so that we can build each other up and strengthen each other and see the body of Christ grow. Now, here's the question. We've got the heavenly church. The heavenly church can be seen in three ways on earth. The general church, i.e. Christians, the local church, which is the community of people, and the gathered church, the actual gathering when people come together to build each other up by the word. Uh, What out of those four ways of speaking about the church are the most important to the Bible? The most important are the heavenly and the local. All of the action goes on in the New Testament in the local church. The fundamental way that worldwide mission is done is in and through the local church. That is what Christ has provided to grow Christians. Now, With those four uses of the word church, let's just have a bit of a think about some implications for our Christian living. Number one, the first thing we learn is that the denomination is not a church. The denomination is not a church. That is not how the New Testament talks about the church. What, therefore, is the purpose of a denomination? Well, if we're a part of a denomination, really, the denomination should be focused on helping local churches. Often, the denomination and all of its machinery does exactly the opposite. That is, the denomination can draw energy from the local church. But in actual fact, the denomination should be giving energy and focused on the local church and growing the local church. But there's another implication. Second thing. When I was a teenager, I was stumped by the question, because everyone told me I was saved, uh, not by anything I do, but purely by Jesus. And so we then went around and said to each other, do I need to go to church to be a Christian? Answer? Yes, I do need to go to church if I want to persevere as a Christian, if I want to make it to the end of the Christian life. You see, the local church is God's way of growing Christians individually. We can't persevere. We can't get to the end without the local church. If I remove my finger from my body... Will, sorry, that's a thumb, how about this one? (laughs) If I remove that finger from my body, will it stay alive? Answer, no. Because it's disconnected from the body. And if I remove myself from Christ's body, particularly the local church, what will happen? I will slowly die. 
If I, as a branch, remove myself from Christ the vine, I will spiritually wither and perish. It won't just happen immediately. It'll just happen over time. I'll keep professing Christ for a while, and then little by little, it'll go. Remember Jesus' words, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do Implication number three. What makes a healthy local church? Well, we've got to think, what is the local church? It's a group of believers committed to each other that are under word leadership. And so a healthy local church will have a strong ministry of the word. It will have leaders that are effective in equipping its people in God's word, so that each member of the church will not be blown about by every wind of teaching, as Ephesians talks about, but each member of the church will be built up and strengthened in the word so that they will be able to stand firm in an unstable world. So there's the teaching on the church. The fundamental church is the church in heaven, And that church is seen in three modes or three ways on earth. Number one, Christians, that's the general church. Number two, the local community, the local group of believers committed to each other. And then number three, the actual gathering of believers, when they meet together to build each other up by the word. There is the church. And so we move now on to the doctrine of the last things. We've been thinking about how the great work of Christ is applied individually in salvation, then applied corporately in the doctrine of the church, and then applied finally in the last things. And so as we come to the last things, we come to certain events that lie in the future. People can get tremendously excited about this. What is the first event that will lie in the future that we need to talk about? A very exciting one. It's the topic of death. Because that's something that's going to happen in the future to all of us. Now, in the Bible, to rightly understand this, you've got to grasp that death is not fundamentally physical in the Bible. Let's go back to Genesis 1. Remember God's word to Adam. God said to Adam, On the day you eat of this fruit, you shall shortly die. Now, did Adam die on the day that he ate the fruit? Physically. Did he die physically? Answer, no. What happened to him? He got kicked out of the garden, didn't he? He got expelled from Eden. In other words, he lost his relationship with God. And so death in the Bible is fundamentally being out of a relationship with God. And the great sign that we've been out of a relationship with God is that we physically die. What is physical death in the Bible? Physical death in the Bible is, we can describe simply as, the separation of the body and the soul. Humans are made up of two parts, a body or a soul, or a body or a spirit, or our outer nature and our inward nature. They're the different ways that the Bible talks about humans. 
And the body and the soul are separated because in physical death the body ceases to work. Jesus puts it like this. In Matthew 10, 28, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Now, as soon as you say that physical death in physical death there is a separation between the body and the soul, this raises the next question to do with what we call the intimate state, the intermediate state. In other words, the intermediate state is the question of when my body ceases to work, is my soul somehow still conscious? And where does it go? Well, New Testament seems to teach that when Christians die, their spirit, their soul, their inner being, their heart goes to be with Christ in heaven. How do we know that? Think of Jesus' words to the thief when Jesus was hanging on the cross. And the thief said, remember me when you go into your kingdom. And what does Jesus say to the thief? I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today, that very same day. So there is some conscious existence after our body dies, after our body ceases to work, that believers have with the Lord Jesus. Paul says that he'd much rather die and be with Jesus, but he's convinced that he's got to stay and keep working for the gospel. Now, what happens, though, to unbelievers? Where do they go? They go to a place that the Bible calls Hades. Not hell, but Hades. And Hades is like a waiting place for the dead. In the Old Testament, it's called Sheol, or Sheol. In the New Testament, the Greek word is Hades, or Tartarus. And there they are kept until the Day of Judgment. 2 Peter 2.9 says this, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and the Lord knows how to hold unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. So unbelievers are being held temporarily for punishment. So there's death, there's what we call the intermediate state. The next topic, of course, is the second coming of Christ. There's the first coming of Christ and there's the second coming of Christ when Christ will return to complete his rule. Um, The first thing we have to say about the return of Christ is that no one knows when and where Jesus is going to return. Matthew 24, 36, Jesus says, but about that hour or day, no one knows Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, if Jesus doesn't know the time, we will not know the time. So don't listen to people who say they do know the time when Jesus is going to uh, return. Every generation, when something really bad happens, they think this is the time that Jesus is going to return. When the Western calendar turned AD 1000, there was all this furor that Jesus was going to return. When it turned AD 2000, there was all this furor that Jesus was going to return. Whenever there have been big wars and rumours of wars, there's always speculation that Jesus is going to return. We don't know. 
The Bible just says be alert all the time and get on with the Great Commission. Why is Jesus going to return? He's going to return to do two things. When Christ returns, he's going to raise the dead and he's going to judge all people. So we need to have a quick overview of each of those events. Firstly, when Jesus returns, he is going to raise the dead. That is, all people that have ever lived throughout human history are going to be raised. Jesus says in John 5, 28, a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out and those who have done good will rise to live and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Now let's be clear, it's not just believers who are going to be raised from the dead, it's also unbelievers who will be raised from the dead. Why? Because as human beings, we are incomplete without our bodies. And we can't undergo a judgment unless we are truly and fully human, both body and soul. When our body dies, we are in a profoundly incomplete state. We'll only be completed again as human beings when we receive our resurrection bodies. So, all people are going to be raised, and then all people are going to face God's judgment. And so we come to Judgment Day. What does the Bible say about this? Well, the Bible says, firstly, that everyone is going to appear before God's judgment seat. 2 Corinthians 5, 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that we may receive what is due for due us for the things that we have done while we're in the body, whether good or bad. Okay? Unbelievers will face God's judgment, but we as believers will face God's judgment. How are we going to be judged? Well, according to 2 Corinthians 5, 10, we may receive what is due for the things done in the body. We will be judged according to how we've used our lives. Now, believers, those who trust in Christ, we on Judgment Day will be found not guilty. Why? Because we are trusting in Christ's perfect death and resurrection on our behalf. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. As Paul says in Philippians 3, 8 and 9, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but a righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. However, we will be judged according to what we've done in our lives. And, according to Scripture, there will be some kind of reward system. And you might be thinking to yourself, hang on, everything I do is tainted by sin. How possibly could I receive a reward? Here's the wonderful thing about being justified by faith alone. Not only are you justified by faith alone, but all the works that you do by faith in Christ, 
those works are justified by faith alone as well. Not the works you don't do in faith, but the works that you do do in faith. Yes, there'll be bad motivations. Yes, they'll be stained with sin. But on judgment day, those stains will be gone and you will be rewarded for those works. Isn't God so good? Isn't that incredible? Now, what are the reward systems? What is the reward system for how we use our lives? Well, the Bible only uses picture language to describe it. We don't actually know what it looks like. But there will be a reward system. But you know what the wonderful thing is? You'll be perfect. You will not be jealous of anyone else who may have done better than you or worse than you. In fact, those who have done better than you, you'll be absolutely praising God at what he's done in their lives. It will just be magnificent. There won't be envy and jealousy. God has created us differently so that we can harmoniously work together and we will just be praising God for the wonderful things that he's done in us. Unbelievers, they will be found guilty and here, after Judgment Day, they will then be thrown into hell. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says about the topic of hell. He says this, There is no topic I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this topic of hell, if it lay in my power. But hell has the full support of Scripture and especially is taught by Jesus. He taught most about hell, by the way. It has always been held by Christians and it also has the support of rational thinking. So we can't escape the reality of hell. Jesus is the one who spoke most about it in Scripture. What is the nature of hell? Hell is spoken about again using picture language because in our current form we can't understand the realities of the new age, the next age. But the one thing that comes through when you look at the Bible's teaching on hell is that it is about being excluded from God's presence. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 Unbelievers will be punished with everlasting destruction and here it is, shut out from the presence of the Lord. They will not enjoy a relationship with God. Shut out from the presence. Excluded from relationship with God. And therefore if people in hell are excluded from God, they are excluded from God's goodness. There will be no harmonious relationships in hell. I've had so many people over the years say, I don't worry about going to hell because all my friends will be there. No, you won't have friends in hell because friendship is a good gift of God. Hell is what we call the second death. That's how Revelation speaks about it. Remember we saw that death was fundamentally being out of a relationship with God. And so Revelation 21.8 describes hell 
as the second death. It says this, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, idolaters, liars, they will be all consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulphur. This is the second death. And hell, as we saw, will be forever. What's one of the fundamental reasons why hell will be forever? Because the inhabitants of hell will not want to repent. You know, the inhabitants of hell will be so self-focused, so turned in on themselves, that they will abhor anything to do with God. And even if you could go down there and say, look, come to heaven, they wouldn't they tell you to nick off. Of course I want to go there. Why would I want to have anything to do with God? And so now we turn from hell to the new creation, eternal life or heaven, the final state for God's people. What will the final state for God's people look like? Well, it's described in Revelation 21, 1 to 4, as a new heavens and a new earth. In other words, it'll be a whole new cosmos. It will be a new material existence. We will have resurrection bodies and the world will have undergone a death and a resurrection. And so we will serve God in the new creation with our new bodies in a concrete existence. What will this existence be like? Well, the curse will finally be lifted from creation and there will be no more evil in the new creation. What does that mean? Don't know if you can conceive of it, but it means that there will be no more sadness. There will be no more pain. No one will mourn. No one will shed any tears. And what will be the crowning glory of this new creation? It is this, that we will see God. Not in the sense of seeing his infinite substance. We can't see his infinite substance. But God the Father will make himself immediately and visibly present to us in a way that we can understand. Since the fall out of Eden, God has withdrawn his immediate presence. But in the new creation, God will be immediately present with us. The Bible says that now we walk by faith, but then we will walk by sight. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 puts it this way. Now we see only a reflection in a mirror, a very dim mirror at that, but then we shall see face to face. When I was seven years old, my parents went overseas for four weeks. When you're seven, four weeks seems like an eternity. During the time that they were overseas, I stayed with some friends. I missed my folks when they were gone. And I'll never forget the day when my parents returned home. I was brought by my friends back to our house and I walked in and I saw my parents. And I couldn't help it, but I just automatically started crying 
with happiness. Because I belonged at home with my parents. And that's what heaven is going to be like for us. Going to the new creation will be when we truly come home. We will see our dear, loving Father. And we will grasp that heaven is actually where we belong. This world here is not our home. Whilst we're on earth living here, we're away from our home. This is not where we belong. Don't invest your life building treasure on earth that won't survive. We don't belong here. Build treasure in heaven. Because we really belong with our Father in that new creation. And those of us who arrive home and we see our Father and we burst out with tears of happiness, we will be so happy that we will say, I don't want this to end. And the good news is, is that it won't end. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.